If you uh, have a copy of God's Word with you, I encourage you turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, then feel free to turn to the inside cover of the bulletin where you'll find this morning's passage or grab one of the black books in the chair rack in front of you, the pew Bibles there, and uh, you'll find it, I believe, on page 622. Isaiah 63, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 6 together this morning. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them. In my wrath, their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was none to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are good and all that you do is good. We pray that you might teach us your decrees, that you might teach us more about ourselves, more about the fallen world in which we live and more about our Savior. Show us our sin, but show us our Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. When there's an elephant in the room, sometimes it's best to acknowledge it. And for you kids in the room who might wonder, wait, there's an elephant? That's an expression. When there's something obvious and glaring and big, like an elephant, sometimes it's best to simply talk about it and not ignore it. Well, many months ago, I outlined Isaiah. And I got to this chapter, and I wrote something like this, fear the crimson tide. Now, maybe I should have avoided such a clear reference to my, my alma mater's mascot, but then again, the word crimson is right there in the text. So maybe I should just acknowledge it, because after all, there's an elephant in the room, and You're going to hear that expression again, so you better get used to it. It'll be over soon enough, but for the moment, the elephant in the room I'm talking about is not my alma mater's mascot, and to change the tone a bit, I'm also not talking about the scandal that's followed their basketball team. Scandals happen, you see, when one of your players gets kicked off the team after getting arrested for murder. Yes, that happened. Scandals happen when you learn that the team's best player was with the accused murderer just moments before, even if the prosecutor said there's no crime they could charge that guy with, even if the university administrators have failed miserably in the PR department, according to someone who has a journalism and communications degree. You see, when all that happens, there's going to be a scandal, an elephant in the room, a thing that maybe people are afraid to talk about even if it would be just a little bit better 
to go ahead and acknowledge it. There's another elephant in the room, and now we're talking about Isaiah 63. There's someone whose clothes are stained with crimson, and he's admitted, oh yes, it is blood, and it's the result of anger, his anger, his wrath. What do you do with that? Do you just, can you avoid it? Can we just talk about God's love, minimize his wrath for a moment? Well, that might be difficult because even if we avoid it, even if we try to talk about other things that are equally true, there's still this, this elephant in the room. There's someone with bloody clothes, vengeance on his lips. Maybe we should just acknowledge it. Maybe we could see what we could learn about all this. Because if we do, if we acknowledge the difficult topic, Maybe we'll see that there is only one way for every wrong to be righted, only one way for every suffering to be avenged. What is that way? Well, it starts with the one in red. The one in red, that's our first point this morning. The one in red brings vengeance. The one in red brings vengeance. Vengeance, not always a happy or a pleasant word. But is there another way to explain this, this passage? Look with me at verse one. Who is this? who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Maybe he's just dressed in a red suit, right? He certainly looks impressive. The word you hear is splendid. He's marching, striding in the greatness of his strength. Some might say there's a swagger here. And he introduces himself with interesting words. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Do you talk like that? Do you know any mere mortal that talks like that? Maybe we should learn a little more about him. It says in verses two and three, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. Apparently his clothes weren't red when, when he bought them, you see, or when he made them. The one who treads the wine press, he would, he would not necessarily have a solid red shirt. That's not the idea here. No, he would, he would have splatter marks all over his clothes. Maybe even the, the guts of crushed grapes hanging off of his shirts. It would kind of look disgusting. It would look like something out of a horror movie almost. Some of us have seen that old I Love Lucy clip where she's crushing the grapes with her bare feet, making funny faces along the way. And, you know, some of that is accurate, relevant for this story here. Yes, when, when people did that, when they crushed grapes in the wine press, they used their bare feet. I assume they washed them beforehand. And yes, it was awkward. I'm sure it didn't feel good between your toes. And yes, red juice would splatter everywhere all over your clothes. But this is not exactly a moment that's full of laughs and funny faces, is it? God often uses this image of the wine press and the grapes being crushed as a metaphor, as a symbol of his holy and righteous wrath against the sins of mankind. And even if we didn't want to admit this as we read all this, we, we should have seen this coming. There were hints in the text that this is what's going on here. It says that this one who comes, he comes from Edom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. J.A. Mortier asks, where would one get one's garments reddened except in the red land itself? 
And he comes specifically from Basra. That's a city in Edom, which sounds like the word for wine press or vintage. Moitir again says, where else would one tread a wine press in Basra? And when you put Edom and Basra together in the Old Testament, like they are in Isaiah 34, 6, they symbolize or they typify the impenitent world, someone says, the world that never repents of their sin, whom God will, whom he must judge in the end. Someone else describes it. They are the typical eschatological end times foe, the embodiment of ceaseless animosity against the Lord and his people. In other words, they represent evil. They represent the evil that God will judge at the end of the world. Do you believe there's evil in the world? Not just mistakes, not just a bad action here or there. Do you believe there's evil, unrelenting evil that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be stamped out for good if there's going to be good in the end? In the 2006 movie Blood Diamond, there's this one scene where the director of a local charity, he asks Leonardo DiCaprio's character a question. They've been talking about the civil war that's raging around them, the, the mercenaries, the freedom fighters, some of whom kidnapped and maimed children, forcing them to become vigilantes, drug users before they even become teenagers. It's awful stuff. But Mr. Glass Half Full, we'll call him, I don't remember the character's name, he says, what do you think, Mr. Archer? Would you say that people are mostly good? And DiCaprio or Archer, he's, he's no saint himself in the movie. And so he says with the touch of cynicism, no, I'd say they're mostly just people. Why do I mention that? Because how you feel about this passage it reveals a lot about you. It reveals what you think about yourself. It reveals what you think about other people and what solution you think there is that could possibly fix all the brokenness around us. If you skip ahead to verse six, it says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Moitir summarizes the common reaction to this passage. We recoil from it. He says, but sober reflection, he goes on, warns us that our reaction is not to be trusted. We know nothing of the emotions proper to absolute holiness. In other words, there are some things that should make us angry. There's some things that should make us angry. Human trafficking should make us angry. So should murder, abortion, slavery. So should blasphemy and irreverence toward our God. But I'd ask you this morning, what's the bigger problem in our world? People who can't get worked up to be angry about anything? Or people who are too angry about too many things, too much of the time? I think there are some people that are still turned off by anger and wrath in the Bible. The quiet reaction in the sanctuary this morning might reflect that. I'm not sure. So it's worth taking time to explain the holiness, the propriety of God's anger. It's proper. It's holy. It's just. It is right for God to be angry about sinners who sin and rebel against his good path, his good law, his good decrees for us. But frankly, most of us who are turned off by God's anger, 
Most of us are hypocrites because we love to harbor anger ourselves, don't we? Maybe it's anger at criminals who are ruining our society. Maybe it's anger at the rich who are spoiled. They're not helping anything. Maybe it's anger at politicians who just attack each other every election cycle and in between. Maybe it's anger at the person who won't apologize to me. Maybe it's anger at the person who did apologize. And so now I have no more excuse to be angry at them. How dare they? It's okay to laugh at that one. We could name a hundred more sources of anger if we tried. Just open up social media. We could find other examples. Most of us are angry about something or at someone. Most of us think somebody needs to be punished by someone. God's word agrees there are some things that need to be punished. The question is whether we're rightly categorizing all of those people and all of the supposed sins that make us angry that we think deserve punishment. In other words, is that thing that makes me angry, is that a sin or not? In our heart, most of us believe that this kind of vengeance is not just acceptable, it's necessary for some. Barry Webb says there is a proper time and place for vengeance for without it, a host of evils would never be righted and there would be no moral government in the universe. It is the final calling to account of those who have oppressed others and apparently gotten away with it. You may not be a Christian and if that's the case and you're still listening, then thank you. I'm glad you're here. You may not be a Christian. You may not be yet convinced of the truth of God's word, but I bet you're convinced that there's evil in the world. And I bet you have some kind of solution for that evil. I bet you think that the world would be a better place without evil in the world. And on that point, we agree. Years ago, I read a book on the Psalms and our emotions. And it says at one point that we are not angry enough about sin. Wait a minute, didn't he just, not angry enough? We should be angry, not just when we are sinned against. That one's pretty easy. We've got that one down, right? I didn't hear an amen. We should be angry, not just when we are sinned against, but also when God is sinned against. We should be angry when we sin against God. And maybe then, if we could do that and summon up the proper anger, maybe then we would begin to appreciate not only the need for wrath, for vengeance, but also the need for salvation. Because the vengeance that we're describing, the, the kind that makes us recoil, it's what we deserve. It's what our sins deserve. And so as much as we might recoil at the blood-stained clothes of a vengeful God, we should be glad that there's more to say about this one dressed in red, this one whose clothes are stained red, this one in red. He brings vengeance, but he also brings salvation. That's our second point this morning. The one in red brings salvation. You see this sprinkled throughout verses 1, verses 4 through 5. But we want vengeance, maybe more than we realize. But vengeance is not mine. That's not my job. It's God's job. Deuteronomy 32, 25, it's quoted in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We want vengeance, but it's not ours. It's God's to give. And we also need 
salvation? Do we want it? Do we realize we need it? Do we want it? Maybe we want it more now than we did yesterday. Maybe we realize our need of it now a little bit more than yesterday. So how do we get it both now and in the future? Well, it's from the same source as before. Let's read verse one again. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Righteousness and salvation. Those are the first words on his lips in this passage, our Savior's lips. There's a whole lot about vengeance in the following verses. But as Moitir says, his foremost awareness is that he has acted in salvation. He goes on, as abundant as his strength is his salvation. It's more than sufficient for every call made upon it. How can I say that this passage, that it's about salvation? Because vengeance implies not just wrongs done, but victims who've suffered. You see, there are no victimless crimes. If you think there are, then I'll buy you a cup of coffee so that we can have a friendly debate about that. Just come let me know. But one thing that may help us as we look at all of this, this hard-to-stomach passage, God is not on some violent rampage for kicks and giggles. No, that's not what's going on here. God is punishing evil at the end of history in this passage because his people have suffered and because they need deliverance. You've already seen in verse 1 where he says he speaks in righteousness. He's mighty to save. You've, after the description of his anger, his wrath, the lifeblood of the unrepentant splattering on his clothes in verses 2 and 3, we also read this in verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. The time of vengeance, it's also the time, the year of redemption, when God will buy back the lost, the destitute, the forsaken, even if it's their fault that they're forsaken. It's the year of God's redemption, or as it says in a footnote here, the year of my redeemed. The year of my redeemed. If you read the ESV, that alternate translation's in a footnote there. In other words, the point is, that vengeance and salvation, they're closely connected to save his people, his redeemed ones. God must one day defeat their enemies, his enemies. And maybe we hate talking about vengeance so much because we assume that God's vengeance, it must be like ours. Selfish, mean-spirited, malicious, purely vindictive. But what if the one who hands out the justice, the vengeance, the payback, what if he is pure and holy and sinless? Interestingly, in verse 3, we read that God's clothes, they become stained or defiled in the process of vengeance. But one commentator says God himself is not defiled or stained. He remains holy. Even as God the Son bore the wrath of God upon the cross, he was not himself defiled. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him to be sin, but we understand that not as Christ becoming sinful, but as him becoming the sin bearer. He bears the punishment of sin, but he does not become sinful. In fact, it's only because he is sinless. He is the lamb without spot or blemish that he can become the sin bearer, the atoning sacrifice for sin. Again, it says his clothes are stained. The Hebrew consonants there are Gimel, Aleph, Lamed. 
but Christ is not staying. And so it says in the next verse, verse four, he announces the year of redemption. Gimel, Aleph, Lamed, it's, it's a very similar word. It's this word goel, redeemed, redemption once again. You might say by his wounds, by his stain, we are redeemed. And the redeemed are not forsaken. Christ is willing to get his hands dirty and his clothes in order to save us. Barry Webb says this passage assures us that nothing we suffer goes unnoticed and that every wrong will be repaid in full. The Lord himself is our avenger. But what if you might be wondering, what if the person who wronged me, what if he gets saved? Well, well, that's wonderful news. That's, that's what our prayer is, that God would kill them with gospel kindness so that he would not have to pour out his awful wrath upon them. But, but what happens, you might say, to that, to that wrong that was done to me? How is that wrong ultimately repaid? The same way that your wrongs have been paid, repaid. Instead of God's wrath being poured out upon you and me, instead of you getting divine pay, payback, Christ takes it. Christ bears it. Christ suffers for it. And when we're floored by that act of mercy, we respond in gratitude for all that he's done. Gratitude to God and patience and love for those who are in need, those who need the same gospel message, the same good news that saved a wretch like me. We want vengeance. We want it more than we want to admit at first. Praise God, he provides it. And we need salvation. We need it a little more than we want to admit. And praise God that he has provided it. And not by making us pay off our debt, working it off for years and years, for lifetimes. But instead, by providing a substitute to pay it, to bear it in our place. Praise the Lord, the one in red. He provides not only vengeance, but also salvation. And then Lastly, we see this. We see that the one in red is the only one who can accomplish both. He's the only one who can accomplish both. You see this throughout the passage. As we've said, vengeance, that is God's job, not mine. And you know, even if I tried, I would only be able to accomplish a little bit of vengeance in this life. In salvation, that is also God's job, not mine. Praise the Lord, he gives it to us. Not my job. I can't accomplish that for others. I can't apply it to others. I can't convince them of it. I can only testify to the grace that Christ has offered. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Only God can give the growth, the increase. And do you notice, do you notice as we talk about how only God can do something, do you notice how much? The one in red, how much his solitude is emphasized in this passage. You see it throughout. Verse 1, it is I, he says, just me. Verse 3, it says he trod the winepress alone from the nations. There was no one with me. He's alone. There's no one with him because there is no one righteous. No, not one. Verse 5, it says, I look, there's no helper. I was appalled. I was shocked at this. There was no one to uphold. So it says his own arm brought him salvation. His wrath upheld him. It kept him going. He's the only one. There's no help. 
Only God can defeat the evil in the world. Only God has the power. Only God is holy and can wipe out evil without himself getting defiled. And only God can bring salvation. Only he can provide the substitute we need. One to die for our sin. One to live for our righteousness. Only God can provide the spotless substitute who can bear our sins. And only he can provide the spotless representative that can impute, that can credit to us his righteousness, his perfection. It gives me the data only I need he to can do that. Only he market. can do both. Understand what's driving and you know, our world is and make more and more godless, more and more secular line. than before. I we might talked not be about able this recently. It's godless, but at the same loss. time, it has this acute them, sense of justice. When we see something wrong, any of us, Christian, non-Christian, we see something wrong, we want justice. We want it now. Time once again for leftovers. where you watch me We want it more than we realize. At the same time, our world is impoverished when it comes to forgiveness. And like any leftovers, until you dig in, you you never know if they're any good or just plain terrible. It only knows how to condemn, how to cancel. It doesn't know how to forgive. This week, during an only interview God on News Nation, former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo announced just. he doesn't just turn a blind eye. He deals network. with it. He takes a few the punishment and was for us. Then I- of course, if you don't want his forgiveness, if you don't want it on his terms, then don't say you weren't warned. Once again, in verse 6, it says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Again, it's stated as a past tense, but it's a prophetic past tense, looking ahead to what is certain to be accomplished. One commentator points out the finality of this, of pouring out someone's lifeblood. He says, thus, like the servant's work of price paying, of sin bearing, the the anointed one's work of vengeance is finished work. It's finished. It's final. It will be one day anyway. We know that God has decisively defeated evil by triumphing over sin and death. He did that on the cross. But there also awaits this final battle when he will destroy evil forever. And spoiler alert, Jesus will do this. You might say, wait, hold on. Jesus will do Surely Jesus was kinder, gentler than what we read about in this passage, right? My friends, there has never been anyone as kind, as gentle, as gracious, as loving as Jesus. But there has never been anyone more fierce, more righteous, more holy, more vengeful than him. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Earlier, we sang a song 
I requested it. Then I debated about requesting it because it says, look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. But it's not talking about this passage, is it? About Isaiah 63? No, this passage in Isaiah 63, the blood that's flowing is the blood of God's enemies. The blood that will flow in Revelation 19 when Christ confronts all those who refused to repent, who rebelled against him. It's the blood of vengeance, the blood of enemies defeated. That song from earlier, it's not talking about this passage. But it's talking about the same Savior, isn't it? Earlier I said Christ is not afraid to get his hands or his clothes dirty in order to save us. And he is not afraid. He is not afraid to strike down his and our enemies. He's also not afraid of the cross. He was not afraid to suffer in our place. He was not afraid to enter into the wine press of the wrath of God so that we could be spared. He was not afraid to shed his own blood, to spare us from shedding our own blood. When we started, I said there was an elephant in the room, a difficult topic to discuss, but by discussing it, it clarifies things, doesn't it? Because if you want justice in the world, and most of us do, all of us do, if you want justice in the world, you need this man in crimson garments. Only he can right the wrongs in this world, and that's exactly what he promises to do in the end. He will wipe away every tear, he says. And if you want comfort, if you want that comfort that he promises, the salvation, the healing, the redemption that sinners like you and me need, then you need this man with blood splattered on his clothes. Because he's not only willing to get bloody, to save you from your enemies. He's not only willing to get his hands dirty, to get his clothes bloody, he's also willing to shed his own blood to save you from your sins. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, in his eyes speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Recoil if you must. But this one in red, he's the redeemer you need. He can forgive you. He can heal you. He can heal this broken world. He can move the mountains. He's mighty to save. And the year of his redemption has come. The one in bloodstained clothes, he's the redeemer you need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. And what you do is good. We thank you for your good work of salvation, your good work that would have horrified us if we had seen it in person, if we were a bystander, an eyewitness at the cross. We thank you for your good work, because by that good work, you have saved us from the fate that we deserve, a fate even more horrible than what we would have seen if we had seen, if we had seen you on the cross in our place. Be with us. Help us to be grateful for all that you have done for us and help us to be humble. Help us to be patient. Help us to be loving to those around us, to those who are made in your image, to those who, like us, need the same redemption that is found in Christ our Savior. 
It's in his great name we pray. Amen.